Well, my dear friends, we are here at the end of another camp meeting. The prayer of my heart is that you've been blessed. I got a letter once. You know, once in a while I do get a letter complaining about something. Comes with the job. The guys in my office say, that's why you get paid the big bucks. I'm still waiting on the check. But the complaint was, there is too much focus on evangelism at camp meeting. God forgive us if we don't focus on evangelism. You know, we have had such a beautiful time together in these hallowed grounds, in the serene setting of the mountains surrounded by lovely Lake Junaluska. And we have been so honored as we've closed this camp meeting these last few days to have Pastor Mike Tucker as our speaker. Pastor Mike is the speaker director for Faith for Today, the oldest religious television broadcast in the world. And tonight, as he shares his closing message with us entitled, Servant God, I invite Pastor Mike to come up here as we pray for him and as we pray for each other, for the spirit of the living God to fall afresh on us. O oh God, our Father, thank you Thank you for these messages that have touched our hearts. Thank you for bringing Pastor Mike to us. And tonight, as we close this camp meeting, we dedicate him to you, asking that you will anoint him with your strength and with your power and with your message, that our hearts will be touched as we leave this place. May we go with a full conviction of wanting more than anything else to be the representatives of Jesus to the lives that we touch outside of this camp meeting. We ask this and we ask that you will fill our hearts with your spirit as we pray together. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me and fill me. Spirit of the living God, My favorite line of the, lot, the night thus far was from HMS Richards all the way down. <laughs> to Mike Tucker. Awesome. <laughs> oh, it was worth the trip for that alone. <laughs> From HMS Richards. Oh, that's great. Hey, actually, HMS Richards played a huge part in my life. I found the gospel in my uh, late teens, early 20s, um, right about 19, 20 years of age. Found the gospel. I was traveling with a youth 
singing group uh, because it was an easier way to make money for college than working in a hot commercial laundry, which was my other option. I didn't like Jesus very much, but I could sing a little bit, and I was making money singing. So that, you know, Mama didn't raise no dummies, I sang. But during that summer, I found the gospel, and it changed my life. And I went back to college, and I didn't find the gospel there, and I began to have doubts about whether or not Jesus really was my Redeemer. And I, I was supposed to sing at a youth group, and I, uh, a youth gathering, and I went there, and there was this tall, slender, old drink of water preaching, and he didn't have a name, really just a bunch of initials, HMS. And I can't tell you for sure what it was he said, but I knew I felt impressed to talk to him because I had two questions for my life. No, question number one, is my salvation really secure? I wanted to know that. And, and the second question that I had was, what should I do with the rest of my life? I'm struggling here. What should I do? And so I waited till just about everybody was through talking to him. He's in a big gymnasium on a pulled up platform like this and he was over on that corner and I was in that corner of the gym and I saw just about the last person so I made my way down to him and somehow he saw me out of the corner of his eye which is amazing because the man was just about blind and he made his way right over here to this side of the stage and grabbed my hand and I had two questions to ask him and he never asked let me say a word remember my two questions is my salvation secure what should I do with my life he looked at me I never said a word he grabbed my hand and he started quoting scripture if you confess with your lips Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Question number one answered. He looked at me and said, son, I don't know what you're going to do with the rest of your life, but whatever you do, keep it simple. And he turned and walked away. <laughs> so I agree all the way from HMS Richards down to Mike Tucker. <laughs> he had an impact on my life, and I praise God for that man. I, it was an honor for me to do a number of the daily broadcast, about 300 of the daily broadcasts with the Voice of Prophecy while they were in transition. I was still speaker director for Faith of Today and pastoring a church of 2,000 members, and I did 300 daily broadcasts for them. Nearly killed me, to tell you the truth. Um, but I, it was an honor to do that for HMS Richards and for that ministry, that historic ministry that he, he founded and started so long ago because of his impact on my life. One of the things that Richards and others, I think, has taught us is something about the character of God. Who is he? And I found a parable I'd like to share with you tonight that, that speaks dramatically to that issue. And that's really what we're dealing with as much as anything else in all these other, these other messages. We're talking about the, the meta-narrative of Scripture from paradise created, paradise lost, paradise regained. The reason we can do all that is because our God loves us. That's a part of his character. It's who he is. And sometimes we get this picture of, of harshness and, and justice and, and, and law and, and coldness that is just inaccurate. And this parable from Luke's gospel, the 12th chapter, starting with verse 35, I think it's, it's a little preached parable, but I, I love this. It's become one of my, my favorites. So let me share it with you. Starting with verse 35, it says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. Now, uh, at first 
Blanche, this doesn't seem like much of a parable, but there's a lot here that I'd like to unpack for you. First of all, this describes a wedding feast taking place in a man's home. It is a large home, and in a very large, expansive home in those days, there were seven classes of people, really. First of all, you've got the master of the house. He's, he's the owner. He's, he's top dog, right? He's number one. Number two would be his wife and children. That's the second tier of importance in, in, this, uh, in this home. Number three would be the steward. This is the individual who's over all the business fairs uh, of the master. He manages the money. He manages the business and he manages the house. Number four would be the, the foreman. These are the people who are, in, who are in charge of the various areas of the household responsibilities and the businesses. They all report back to the steward, right? Then you've got the number five is the permanent paid employees who live in the house. These are craftsmen, skilled, skilled workers who probably live in the house with the master. It's a big house. And uh, so that's, that's the fifth level. Number six would be the day workers who come in during the day, work, and then leave and go home at night. And number seven... The, the lowest level of, of people in this household, the lowest rung of the, on the totem pole, so to speak, are the slaves, the servants of the slaves. Now, slavery in that day was very different than what we remember from American history. It was not limited to a particular race of people or category of people. Anyone could become a slave. If you hit on hard enough financial times. Now, usually the laws pre prevented you from being a slave any longer than seven years. And so if you had really bad financial times, you lost your land, you lost everything else, you owed a debt too great to repay, you could go into slavery for the person to whom you owed the majority of that money for no longer than seven years, and your debt would then be paid in full. There were special circumstances where you might relay, remain in slavery longer, but you would have usually some sort of uh, decision to make and some choice in that whole process. But that's what slavery was like. But during those times of slavery, you were the low man on, on the totem pole any place you went. And your only hope was that you owed this money to a kind master, someone who would take care of you. Now, if you lived in the master's house and you were a slave, you wore the same garb that most everyone else did, and that was just a big robe. And it, you wore the robe because it didn't touch you anywhere. That in, a, in a hot climate, you just don't want clothes touching you much of anywhere. My late wife had one nightgown that she loved. I called it the green blob. <laughs> it was shapeless and, and it didn't, she loved it because it didn't touch her anywhere. That's what she loved. It didn't touch her. I hated it. I declared it would, it would survive a nuclear holocaust. Because the thing lasted forever. It never wore out. I said, Lord, please let this thing work. And she would only wear it when I was gone, which I was thankful for. But, you know, it, it was the green blob, and she loved it because it didn't touch her anywhere. It's funny, when I went through all of her stuff after her, her passing, the last thing I got rid of was the gr green blob. You go figure that out. I don't know why. But anyway, the green, it just didn't touch her anywhere. And that's what was important in this, in this arid part of the world you just don't want things touching you because it makes you hot. Now, when it's time to work, they would take a rope or a belt and tie it around their waist because it would pull the robe up from just right next to the floor to a two, two to three inches above the floor, which would free your feet so that you could work. Now, if you wanted to run, you put on that belt, you'd reach between your legs, take the bottom part of the back of the robe, pull it up, tuck it in your belt, and you've just made shorts. 
and you could run, right? But basically, in order to, to work, you would gird yourself by putting on your belt so it raised the, the, uh, the rope up, getting it off the floor so now your feet were free, you could move more freely, and you could do the household labor. So that's the background for this. Now let's go back and look at the parable once again. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. If you've ever gone camping on a dark night, you know it's, you're smart to light the lamps before it gets dark because if you tried to light one after it's dark, this is not a good plan. So having the lamps lit was an important thing. Be dressed in readiness. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast. So that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Now that's a curious verse. When he comes from, returns from the wedding feast. Actually it would be better translated when he slips away from the wedding feast. So in other words, according to the original language, the wedding feast, the implication is that the wedding feast is continuing to go on. It is not over yet. Those feasts would sometimes run days. You know, they go forever and late into the night. And so he slipped away while the wedding feast is still going on. He's slipped away and he's gone back. And it says that he knocks on his door, which is a curious thing as well. Because in the Middle East in that time, and even to some degree today, you don't knock on doors only. If indeed you go at night to your friend's house, you would call to them. If someone only knocked after you had closed the door and locked it for the evening, the assumption was that they were up to no good and you would not open the door. But if you called, Joe, this is your friend, Mike, he would recognize your voice and open the door to you. So you might call and knock. Jesus says, behold, I am at the door and I, and I knock at the door. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, because he's calling and knocking, you recognize his voice, you will open the door. He will come in and sup with you, right? That's what he says. So he's calling to you. The door is locked. He calls to you. You open the door recognizing his voice and he comes in. So why would the master knock on his own door? Well, the assumption is this. The wedding feast is taking place in the master's home. And he has decided to slip away while the feast is still going on. Because perhaps it's his own son who's being married. And so as to not alert the guest to his absence, he quietly goes to an inner door. It opens up to the home, not to the outside, but into the home where he knows his servants, his slaves are waiting inside to assist him when he comes back. And so as to not alert the other guests, he just lightly knocks on the door. They hear the knocking and open to the master. They're not afraid to open it because it opens up to the house where they know there are only friends. There are wedding guests and the master and the family are there. So with the knocking, they'll open up to so the, the, the feast is going on in the master's house. Perhaps his own son is being married. And in the midst of the feast, he slips away quietly while the feast is still going on and knocks on his own bedroom door, an inner door in the house. And the servants hear his knocking and they open it. So what's going on? Blessed are those, slave, uh, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve. And have them recline at table and will come up and wait on them. So he comes, they open the door to him and the master comes in and they think, all right, you were ready for bed. Let, let us assist you. But no. Instead, he takes a belt and girds himself. They say, what are you doing? Why would you, why would you gird your, what are you going to scrub the floors? We're here. That's what we do. What, what are you doing? 
He doesn't answer them. Instead says, recline at my table. No, we're not reclining at your table. That's you recline at table. We, we serve you. And, and we haven't prepared anything for you because you were eating at the feast. What, what would, why would we recline at table? You know what's happened. In the midst of his joy at the wedding of his own son, the master remembers his slaves, his servants, who were not at the wedding feast. And he says, no, this cannot be. He takes a tray. He goes and he finds the choicest meats, the choicest fruit and vegetables, and he piles the tray, the choicest breads and desserts. He piles the tray full of things and he covers it with a napkin. When no one's looking, he slips away. He goes back to his private quarters within the house. He quietly knocks on the door. The slaves here, they open. He comes and sets the tray down and says, you guys recline at table as he girds himself. No, they protest. Yes, master's orders. And the master serves his slaves. Unheard of. Takes the culture of the day, turns it upside down. Never would you hear of a master of a great house serving his slaves. He will come and wait on them. It's what it says in verse 37. The master now serves his slaves food from the wedding feast. Blessed are those slaves, whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so. Second watch being from about 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. The third watch, 2 a.m. to sunrise. No matter what the hour, blessed are they when the master comes and serves them. You know, in my head comes visions of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper. The representation of the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus. And better yet comes that scene in heaven with the marriage feast of the Lamb. Where we recline at God's table. And God himself serves us the food at the wedding feast of the Lamb. He serves us those things of which have been emblematic of the broken body of his dear son who is now marrying the chosen bride. The broken body of the son who made it possible for you and me to find salvation. The father himself, the creator God of the universe, has you recline at table. And he will wait on you. That's what this is telling us. That's an incredible thought. Me? I'm a nothing. I'm a no one. I look in the mirror. I know my brokenness. I know my sin. And yet the Father says, no, it's not enough that I sent my son. It's not enough that he died. He bled and died for you. It's not enough that he made a huge sacrifice. I'm not going to let you sneak into heaven, Mike. I want you to recline at table and I'm going to serve you. <laughs> the God of the universe, are you kidding me? That's what this parable tells us about you. That's how much he cherishes you. And not only does he cherish you that much, but the men and women who live in your neighborhood, some of those who you think are the, the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, the bum on the street corner that's always asking for a handout. You know he's spending it on, on alcohol. 
He wants to serve him. The prostitute, the pimp, the drug dealer. He wants to serve them. Because he loves them as well. The heart of the Father is an incredible thing. It's an impossible thing to fathom. It's an impossible thing to understand. And yet, that's who he is. I look at some people and I'm just almost repulsed by them. But the Father adores them. And he longs for them to recline at his table during the wedding feast of his own son to the chosen bride so that he, the Father, can wait on them. That's our God. And when we get that vision of him, that picture, it changes everything. It changes how you feel about yourself. It changes how you relate to your God. It changes how you relate to the people in your own home, in your church, in your community, in the world. It changes everything. He wants to wait on members of ISIS. He longs for them to be in the kingdom. He longs for the terrorist who blows himself up to be in the kingdom. Even though he's killed innocent people, he loves that individual. He loves the pedophile and longs for him to be there at the table. He loves everyone. Do you believe this? Could this possibly be true? Is our God that big, that strong, that wonderful, that loving, that caring, that good? Is it possible? Yes. <laughs> the Bible tells us over and over again, how did we get this picture of this cold, harsh, unapproachable God? How did we get it? God, forgive us for thinking that's who you were. Help us to see this picture. The loving God who wants to be your servant and serve you. We get these idiotic ideas about headship. And Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to be the servant of all. That's his leadership model. It's not about authority and control, and it's about service in freeing people to be all they can be. That's his model. Study it, find it. See it. It changes your view of the world. It changes your view of everything and everyone. Some of you have grown up with a picture of a God who is harsh and non-loving and non-accepting and who was more interested in the, the length of your hair and the length of your skirt than he was in your soul. <laughs> what silliness. It's time to challenge those images. It's time to look at them in the light of Scripture and see who this God is. It's time to quit criticizing each other over trivia. It's time to quit gauging your spirituality by what you eat and you don't eat and how many minutes you pray or read your Bible. It's time to see yourself and others as Christ sees you. And Christ is crazy about you and even the people you think are the worst of the worst. He's crazy about them. And he longs for them all to be in his kingdom. We inadvertently, perhaps, have portrayed him in a way that is totally unattractive. But when we portray him accurately, Jesus says, I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. 
When you see him as he is, he is irresistible. I was asked to preach at a camp meeting in Kansas, Nebraska. And uh, they were running short of funds. So they decided to get their money's worth out of me, rather like the Carolinas have. (laughs) This is my seventh speaking appointment since Thursday night. I am worn out. But they, they did much the same thing. You're, you're a frugal man and you're a smart man. I appreciate that about you. <laughs> Saving money for evangelism, what this man is doing. That's good. They did much the same thing. They were just going to do one weekend. And so they flew me in and they put me up in their girls' dorm so as to save money. <laughs> School was out, so it was safe. <laughs> and and they, um, they had me speak Friday night, twice Sabbath morning, once Sabbath afternoon, once Saturday night, and once again Sunday morning before I caught my flight out of there. They were getting their money's worth, and I was the only speaker. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you know, that's, uh, I flew in, and I, I unpacked and uh, got ready for the Friday night meeting. And if you've ever been on the campus of Union College, which is where this was being held at the Union College Church, right across the street from the college. You, you, to get there, walking from the girls' dorm, you walk by that, that what used to be the entrance to Union College. You've got a stone arch there. Some of you are shaking your head. You've been there. You've seen a stone arch there. It was built, I don't know, a long time ago. And I'm, I'm walking towards that thing, and I see this man, about my age, hands in his pockets, standing underneath that thing, looking at it. And as I walk by, I said, about got it figured out? <laughs> yeah, I think I could do that. Ah, that's cool. You in construction? Yep. Good. Where are you from? Kansas. Enjoying camp meeting? Nope. <laughs> Why are you here? Well, started going to this church and they thought I needed it, so they brought me here. Okay. Going to the meeting tonight? Don't know. So I think you ought to go. Why? I'm, I'm preaching. <laughs> Who are you? Mike Tucker. What's your name? Larry. Larry, I think you need to go. What are you talking about? Jesus. I don't know. I said, Larry, when I stand up to preach, I'm looking for you. Because this message is just for you. Serious? Yeah. Maybe. I said, I'm looking for you, buddy. I'm praying you'll be there. And I walk on over to the meeting. Well, they go through their preliminaries and finally it's time for me to preach and I stand up and I start looking for Larry and I'm, I'm looking hard for this guy. You know, this church is kind of spread out around you. You know, it's, it's a big affair. And I'm looking all over and finally I spot him. He's not sitting down. He's standing at the very back of the church, back against the wall, right next to the door just in case. <laughs> he wants a quick exit, man. He wants out of there in a hurry. And his arms are crossed just glaring at me, kind of daring me. Yeah, let's see what you got I preached the gospel that night as hard as I know how to preach it righteousness by faith in Christ alone the love of the father the gift of eternal life for each one of us I preach it as hard as I know how to preach it and afterwards I'm standing down here shaking hands and I look up and there's Larry I'm I'm impressed he made it all the way down man the roof didn't fall in or nothing you know he's looking at me I look at him, well, what'd you think? Stuff you said tonight, true? No, Larry just made it up. (laughs) 
I said, yeah, it's true, Larry. In fact, the truth is that God's better than I told you he was because I'm not smart enough to tell you how good he is. Seriously, yeah. Wow. That's sure not what they preached when I grew up in this church. I said, oh, you grew up in the church. Yeah. And he told me a story. Larry was born to a woman who was a drug addict and an alcoholic, and she was so severe an addict that when her baby was born, the state took him away from her and put him in a home. And he never saw her. Um, he stayed in the home, and they couldn't adopt him out because they weren't sure if he was retarded or just flat-out crazy, even as a, an infant, because of how he responded and how he acted. In fact, it got so bad that when he was six, they took him to the psychiatric portion of their, their facilities and put him in a padded cell. Six years old. Steel door, cinder block walls, bars in the windows. The boy sitting on a bed, on a cot, crying because he doesn't know why he's there. About that time, there was an elderly couple from Kansas who came by and they went to the home and said, we want to adopt your worst case. Who would that be? They said, well, it will be Larry, but you don't want him. Well, why don't we want him? Well, he's either... Retarded or crazy, we don't know which, maybe both. So we want to see him. Okay, so they took him to the psych facility. They looked through the window, saw him sitting there. They said, we'll take him. They said, we don't know who's crazier, you or Larry. <laughs> but they arranged it. They took him. They took him back to Kansas and took him to a physician friend of theirs who was, also, who was a Seventh-day Adventist. This was a Seventh-day Adventist couple. Took him to a physician friend. He examined Larry and figured out that he was neither crazy nor retarded. He couldn't hear. Baby was born almost deaf. Couldn't hear. They fitted him with hearing aids. He could, and he could hear just fine and, and he could learn. He was an ADD. But half the people in this room are ADD. You're looking at your watch right now. How long is this going to go? Hell from there. little glow off in the distance. I can say that because I was born there. Still live there, right? little glow off in the distance there. Larry drove 500 miles in an unair conditioned truck. The man wanted to be baptized. He made the mistake of telling some people at the church and four of them got into an air-conditioned car. Why they didn't invite Larry, I don't know. But they drove down too just to make sure it happened. <laughs> Stood in the baptistry with Larry. It's a holy moment. You talked about that earlier. One of the most sacred moments in the world is standing in the baptistry with someone who's received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Making that commitment. It's a sacred time. And I thought about what this meant for Larry. Larry had been rejected by his mother, by the orphanage, by the state. He'd been rejected by his wife. When a boy, he thought he was rejected by his parents, by the school, by the church, and by God. But now, because he had a correct picture of who God was for the first time in his life, Larry was accepted. Larry belonged. Larry began to get the picture of the God who says that on that day, he's going to command Larry to recline at his table so that God himself can serve him. Larry now sees that God as his present reality, and he longs to be with him.
Larry's a deacon in the church. He's active. He's working. Because he wants to see that God. I implore you by the mercies of Christ to examine scriptures and find out just who he is. Examine the loveliness of Jesus, his character, his love, his tenderness, his longing for man, his longing for man, woman, child, for everyone on the planet to be reconciled to himself and to the Father. Examine that Jesus. See that Jesus. Lift him high in your own life and see his love for you, his acceptance for you. And let that love so permeate your life and so change your life that you are just overflowing. You cannot help but tell others about him. And then just do it. Just tell your story. And just love the way he loves. If we'll do that, it's not going to be a thousand baptisms. It'll be two or three thousand. If this conference catches that vision of that Jesus and focuses on him, the change in your life, the change in the Carolinas will be amazing. Because that's the thing that matters. Pray with me, won't you? Lord Jesus, may we see you as you are. May that vision change our lives. May we overflow with your love and share it with those around. And may you come soon. We want to be at that table, Lord. We want the Father to wait on us. We don't get it. We don't understand it. But he's promised to do it, so we're going to be there. We give you glory, for we pray it in your name. Amen.